<laughs> good times, good times. I, I couldn't do proper Kermit the Frog. Six, five, Hello and welcome to the Ground Control Podcast. This is episode 41. We're recording this live on Thursday, June 29th, 2017. I am your host, Ryan Dunsmore. And with me is, as always, our, my tried and true co-host, Chris Perry. Ah, so I've reached a tried and true status now. I, that's good. That's good to know. Well, if you so I'm, I'm a grizzled veteran, you say? Yeah, y- yes, you have uh, reached, uh, I guess, who would be the most grizzled veteran? Hmm. McCann, I guess. Maybe uh, maybe Ioki. I wouldn't call him grizzled, though. Let's go with McCann. I'm, I'm trying to think of who would be like the – who would you think of in your – like if you looked up grizzled veteran in your book uh, for like all of the MLB, who would it be? I guess like Julio Franco? Yeah, it doesn't get much more grizzled than he was at the end of his career. Let's go with that. Maybe uh, Bartolo Colon. I don't know, man. He just got DFA'd, so I don't, I don't know if we want Bummer. To... I don't know if we want to go that that route, but I, but uh, I was I was really hoping he'd still be pitching by the time my four year old son was my age. That would be fun. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I have a question for you because uh, you you talked about it before the podcast. And let's start off here. What's uh what's the Angels' record compared to the rest of the uh, AL uh, AL in general? Uh, okay. Yeah, so I brought this up. We're recording this on Thursday night, and the Astros have are 13 games ahead of the second place Angels in the division. Okay, so keep that in mind: the 13 games ahead of the second place Angels. Now, the second place Angels have 42 wins right now. So, who else also has 42 wins? Ryan, do you know? Uh, the Cleveland Indians, and I believe the Yankees. Yes, the New York Yankees and the Cleveland Indians, both of whom are in first place in their division. So the Astros are 13 games ahead of a team that has the same record as the first place teams in the other two divisions in the American League. You know, this season is just getting silly because you you keep seeing things like that and you just kind of want to laugh and say this can't be true. This team can't be for real, but but it is. I mean, we uh, I would say the Astros fans deserve this kind of winning, don't you? I would. I'm I'm not. I'm kind of one of those people that never says, "Hey, this in the end, it's a game." Kind of. A, I don't necessarily want to throw the deserve title on it, but what you know what I want more is the guy that gets the the team that gets held out of the playoffs that the Angels make it. That somehow it becomes a, a three team race for the AL West, it, it, and not necessarily the Astros don't go run away with it but it still holds that it's the Angels and Rangers going back and forth. It ends up being the Rangers finishing third in the, in the uh, division and missing the playoffs. Whatever situation ends up in the Rangers being most embarrassed, I'm totally on board with. And that's, that's always, I mean, honestly, I'm petty. That's, that's really what I want out of life right now. Like, you know, it, think, think back to 2011, 2012. You know, we said, oh, this is never going to be a rivalry. This is so fake. They're forcing a rivalry that'll never happen. Hey, Give me a break. This is already one of the best rivalries in baseball now. So but, uh, it is really great fun to have a team to hate. Then guess who we can thank for all that? It's just Rugnan Odor. Rugnan Odor and Carlos Gomez. Oh, man. I know what yeah. I, I have to say. I have to give some credit to uh, uh, Bannister. He he has really kind of stoked the fires. Yeah. Yeah. So m- mad props to him. Yep. All right. Let's talk about just the Astros where they are right now since we're getting back to our weekly format here. The Astros have won. Eight of their last ten, really kind of getting hit, pinned back to that stride here. Won a four-game series in Oakland. Or swept the swept the A's, 
won a th- won a three game series against the Mariners in uh, Oakland back in Houston as of recently. Here, the game just finished at about four o'clock ish today. Here with the Astros winning because Carlos Correa is is great. What I want to talk about necessarily is how uh, anything specifically other than that the really kind of Josh Reddick, George Springer, and Carlos Correa have really kind of exploded. Really, what have you seen anything that's different about them at all here? What's really going right for them at the moment? Well, what's really going right? So I'm looking at the last two week statistics, and I, you know I promised myself when I got into this podcasting biz that I wouldn't go stats heavy because it's as boring as crap. But you have to go down ten spots to the tenth person on the Astros uh, lineup, batting lineup, um, over the last two weeks to find one batter who doesn't have a weighted runs created plus well over 110, meaning that they're at least 10% better than blah, blah, blah. The whole team has been ridiculous at the plate. Um, Springer, Altuve, Reddit, Correa, Bregman, Mariznick. I mean, I, first of all, I want to say I, I want to punch a train every time I hear some radio talk show caller Yahoo call in and say that they want to trade Alex Bregman for a pitcher. Bregman has had a great last two weeks. He's coming around. He's still not hitting for a lot of power, but I think it's worth pointing out that his on-base percentage was nearly 400 for the last couple of weeks, and he's he's hitting doubles. He's really he's contributing finally. You know, Jake Marisnik is still up there as well. Um, the whole team is is just almost beyond belief right now at the plate, and uh, I like it. I mean, seriously. I don't know how much better this team can get on offense right now. I mean, outside of maybe I'm looking at this past week, which is such an extreme small sample size. Maybe it is finally time to cut Korda Nori Aoki. I'm sure the team will do that at some point. I don't think Aoki makes a playoff roster. But Brian McCann's kind of come back down to earth. Carlos Beltran's still kind of lingering around where he, around 200. But outside of that, I, everybody's contributing to this team here. I... I just can't see how this this ends at any point because no one's really playing out uh, over their heads. Really, what I'm seeing is you're seeing the potential of Carlos Correa, who just basically become. I, I mean, he's. I'd say he's easily in the top five conversation right now of most power for a, a shortstop, at least in the game right now. And he, since he, Alex Rodriguez, yeah, maybe? I mean, I was yeah. gonna say I was trying to basically H- say Hanley that, Ramirez in his prime. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Maybe it's weird because I don't think of Hanley for some reason as a shortstop anymore. Uh, I know been a he's, while. it's been so long. It's been outfielder, first base. It kind of just feels like, well, what, what what really was that except to say, hey, he just liked playing shortstop and you're trying to keep a, keep a young prospect uh, happy, I guess. That, that's obviously not the case here. But, but what I'm trying to say is that if Correa keeps at this pace, he's at right now uh, – uh, could he not be outside of maybe uh, Alex Rodriguez, the greatest power hitting shortstop ever in the game? Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm I'm good with some pretty hot takes, and that's a good one. I, he's 22 years old, and I want so badly to say yes, but I just want to keep seeing it. Um, mm-hmm. One thing you just said were, was that uh, you know the Astros. Um, you know, could be doing more to tell you the truth over the last 14 days. It, it's not reasonable to expect this content to continue. Um, 
the Astros have been outstanding and they are capable of being outstanding, but they have been otherworldly video game numbers. Awesome. You know, over the last two weeks, they have four guys who were hitting almost or hitting over 350. You know, with four guys with on base percentages over 400, one of them over 500. Um, realistically, this offensive pace uh, that we've seen recently can't continue. But the good news is that it's been so absurdly ridiculous that they could literally be, let's say, 30% worse and they'd still be the best offense in baseball. Um, but that's more speaking to how good they've been. So, um, this last yeah his last two weeks have been the peak of any reasonable or even unreasonable expectation and it was a lot of fun to watch okay i retract i'm, I'm looking over a rod stats and i retract my statement completely <laughs> you know why because alex rodriguez has hit what six seven eight nine nine seasons where he hit over 40 home yeah. runs no, actually, I actually think um, that Hanley Ramirez might not be a bad comp for Carlos Correa at this point. Um, Carlos Correa is actually a decent defender, uh, but they're both hit. They both hit for high average. They both had good walk rates. They both hit for really good power. Um, Hanley hit a lot more speed when he was younger, um, a lot more stolen base mm-hmm. speed. Um, but that's not really a knock on Correa. And and Hanley also didn't maintain it. He had a lot of injuries and had to move off the position and everything. So I would say that Carlos Correa looks like a peak Hanley Ramirez who might be able to sustain it a lot longer um, with, you know, obviously the ultimate ceiling possibly reaching Alex Rodriguez. But, you know, we got to realize, you know, remember what Alex Rodriguez was doing to probably help boost his numbers. And on top of that, you know, all that aside, Alex Rodriguez may be the best player that I'll ever see in my lifetime. That's how good he was. So maybe, maybe there's a couple others that have an argument, but, um, and, even and, comparing Carlos Correa to a rod would be unfair to Carlos Correa because it's impossible to reach, to expect anybody to reach that level. Um, and I don't want to, you know, use that comparison to reflect negatively at all on Correa, who's one of the best players in baseball. And uh, it also probably helped Alex Rodriguez to have three summers in uh, with the Rangers that happened to be three of his top five home run seasons. Yeah. May, may have, summer may have helped. Uh, summer in Arlington does uh, tend to uh, cause the ball to fly a bit. Right. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, I feel like there's some happy medium between Hanley Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez, but I feel like that's, an insane comp comp to begin with. So it's, it's just, Hey, cool. That's, yeah. That's, we're talking about our 22 year old shortstop here, you know, <laughs> right. and we're, we can't decide if he's Hamley Ramirez or Alex Rodriguez in their prime. That's a good problem to have. And, and he's already on, if he does hit anywhere near Alex Rodriguez, he's already kind of on track to, uh, Alex Rodriguez had six home runs through his age 19 season. And after that, he had a 54 or a 36, 23, 42, 42. I feel like uh, yeah. uh, uh, Correa is going to definitely get over 30 this year. I mean, he's already at, what, 23 or something like that now? Yeah, yeah, he will. So uh, I feel like a lot of things are going right for the offense. I'm not sure if there's anything else we can add about that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't even know. Is there, is there any, any switch at all you'd make outside of, uh, I'm sure, of saying, hey, maybe Derek Fisher might be better than Nori Aoki out there. But you could have said, just simply say Jerry Marisnik should get more starts. 
But sure. Moving, moving on from that, uh, I, I know a guy we really are fond of, or at least. Well, the- look, to answer your question real quick, because I know we are going to go with that. But real quick, the, the one place that I am still worried about is first base. Mm-hmm. Um, the more I watch and the more I keep track of the numbers, I'm a little nervous about Yuli Gurriel. Um, yeah, he hit 319 over the last, you know, 11 games that he played with zero walks. I, I just don't believe in the long-term viability of a major league batter who doesn't walk because eventually you major league pitchers are just going to stop throwing to him. Um, and it's, it's happened time and time again, and he doesn't really have enough power to, you know, to punish mistakes the way other guys, some other guys can do. So while he's not really a problem because the rest of the team is so good, um, if I'm looking to improve, if I have an opportunity to improve maybe next year or the year after, I'm definitely looking at first base and saying, you know, there's a position that we're we're little shaky and inconsistent at. Okay, so I think that's an excellent point to make here. What I would ask you then here just as a follow-up, what internal option would you go with as your number one option uh, I guess basically, are you? I would say, are you going Marwin? Or are you going someone in the minors? Uh, I'd have to go Marwin. I, I really believe in what in Marwin's mechanical changes, and we've been over this ad nauseum. So I'm not going to wax poetically about Marwin. Um, and you, as my witness, I was probably the one person on staff who was least interested in talking about Marwin Gonzalez before this year. Um, I wasn't a fan at all. Uh, but he's been ridiculous and he could hold his own at any position on the diamond, including first base at this point. So, um, the, the guys in the minor leagues, there's worries about each one of them. There's, there's four candidates right now, realistically, that could be a minor league or a major league first baseman. And they're all, you know, they don't, they wouldn't make me any more comfortable than Gurriel. So I wouldn't even make that switch. But, um, you know, on the other hand, I really like having Marwin playing, all over the baseball field. So, yeah, I don't really think there is a good option, and that's why I, I'm not really suggesting the Astros should do any make any changes at first base at this time. All right, so let's talk about a guy that, that I think we've been really fond of lately here, especially after his, his changes and getting back into the starting rotation after his one-day hiatus. Mike Fires he continues to post uh, quality starts here minus his last start, but he didn't. He uh, left with the bases loaded and uh, – yeah. Um, Chris, I know you want, wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about him here, so I give you the floor. I, what do you say about Mike Fires? Um, first of all, uh, one of our writers, uh, Lystomania409, wrote a great article talking about the uh, the changes that Mike Fires has made over the last several weeks. Um, and I encourage everybody to read that because it really encapsulates everything well. And what I'm talking about here is just going to be kind of an overview but um, really since May 30th, since his start on May 30th, uh, Mike Fires has been a night and day completely different pitcher. I, I Maybe you can, Ryan, help me out here. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I, I, I'm racking my brains. And in the last six starts, Mike Fires has a 243 ERA, and that includes his last start, which was kind of a clunker. Um, 243 ERA, and it's legitimate. He's not given up a home run in six starts. He's not given up a home run in a calendar month. This is the guy that if you recall earlier in the, in the in the year, we were recording a podcast and you kept interrupting me by saying, uh, "Mike Fires just gave up another home run." Remember that? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So this is a guy that we made running jokes about giving up home runs, has not allowed one home run in a calendar month. It's beyond belief. Um, his strikeouts, he's striking out a batter per inning. Uh, he's going deeper into games. It's I, I cannot remember in my entire life seeing a pitcher go from one extreme to the other like this before. Uh, any ideas? Uh, the only thing I can think of is Jake Kaplan wrote, a, wrote an article about how he has changed his delivery for his curveball. I believe is what was the change he had lowering the lowering the angle, not necessarily going over the top. Maybe he's done that a little bit more with all his pitches and kind of just changed his release point a little bit. Oh well, uh, yeah. I mean, I was referring to. Have you ever remember? Have you ever oh. can you think of a pitcher who's done this before? Because yeah, you're right. He's made some certain mechanical changes, and that's kind of what I want to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, in in season like this, absolutely not. Like right. it, it, it just basically saying, okay, you've. You you can work out the jam, the, the kings here uh, mid stride and basically turn that like it, it, he had one of his worst outings right before he made this run here. So it's like, yeah, I, I, either he was having to learn on the job and, and, th- and doing the adjustments and just not having positive results from it. Or this just is an overnight kind of thing. And, and, and it, this is it's insane either way. So it, yeah, it's this it's is benef- benefit for the Astros, of course. This is an overnight thing. He went home from his start on May 25th against Detroit at home, in which he gave up, I think it was like four runs and four and a third innings. He, he, he really didn't have a good outing. He went home, and he came back five days later, and he quit throwing his slider altogether, like altogether. He was throwing it um, about 15% of the time. He has not thrown a slider since May 30th, okay? He stopped throwing his cutter, which he was throwing, depending on the game, somewhere between 5 to 30% of the time. So he was throwing that 30% of the time. He's barely throwing that now. And he increased by a lot the number of curveballs he's thrown and the number of changeup he's thrown, and he's added a, a sinker. He's added a, two, a two-seam fastball. So what he's done is he's completely ditched two of his bread and butter pitches and and picked up a new one and started throwing his curveball and changeup more. What that's done is what I find so astounding. The biggest knock that everybody's always had on Mike Fires is that he's been an extreme fly ball pitcher, right? It's always been, you know, his ground ball rate was somewhere around, you know, 40 to 45 percent, which is extremely low. Um, It's, you know, it's not unbearably low. There's a lot of pitchers that can succeed being fly ball pitchers and a lot of them that actually are very good at it. But Mike Fires was through and through a fly ball pitcher since May 30th. Let me let me pull the date here. Since May 30th, his ground ball rate has been 60 percent. He has been among the most ground ball-y of ground ball pitchers in all of Major League Baseball in the last six starts. And that's after having a career in which he was one of the most fly ball-y of fly ball pitchers. It's even, I mean, watching it's amazing. Watching the fact that he's dominating right now is amazing on TV because you're like, where did this guy come from? He was, he was basically a laughing stock at the beginning of the year up through may. 
And all we could do is talk about how we needed to get rid of him. When's Marte's coming up? Is Musgrove going to take his spot when McHugh comes back? Who are we going to trade for to get rid of Mike Fires? Is Mike Fires going to the bullpen? Is he good enough to go to the bullpen? And now, all of a sudden, he has legitimately been the best starting pitcher in the rotation for a calendar month. And he's gone from an extreme flyball pitcher to an extreme groundball pitcher, which I've never seen before. I've never seen anything like that before. And he did it all by ditching his slider, which wasn't working, and picking up a two-seam fastball to generate more grounders. That's it. I, I don't know what else to add there. Just it, it is absolutely fascinating. It, and maybe I'll just ask you a question. Does, does, does his mechanics remind you at all of just not necessarily uh, – he doesn't have the same kind of speed of with the way he delivers the ball? Does he remind you at all of just the way he, that Roy Oswald used to deliver it? Um, a little bit. Um, you know, I'm looking at this here. Neither of them are terribly big guys. Roy Oswald, I think, was a little bit smaller. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't remember well enough to be able to say his delivery is this compared to that. Um, well, the reason but, I asked is just, it just, I remember just, there was that time when, when, when Roy was really struggling and as the post, the post 2006 to somewhere, I think it was getting closer to 10 and, right. and he's struggling really hard and, and teams are hitting his fastball really, really hard because it is, is breaking stuff's not getting over the plate. It's just fascinating to see a guy make that adjustments without having yeah. to find a new new voice to talk to him. Because well, like- I remember I remember Oswald being a little bit banged up at the time, but you know Roy Oswald, their stuff was very different. You know Roy was still throwing ninety four even then, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. 93, 94, and he had those two different curveballs. You know, in one of his curveballs, he could drop down to 65 miles an hour. So, I mean, their deliveries might have been similar. Uh, and again, I don't recall, but but their weapons were very different. And uh, the knock on Mike Fire, you know, Roy always had that curveball. You know, those curveballs were something that, that few pitchers in the major leagues could match. Um, and, you know, especially when you mixed it with a fastball that was 30 miles an hour faster. But... It, I've always, I mean, back me up here from the, from the time the Astros acquired Mike fires, I was a fan of that move. And so I've been a little disappointed because he hasn't shown some of the potential that I always thought he had. Uh, but from watching him is I've never felt like fires has had a real weapon. Um, he has four solid pitches or had four solid pitches and he never really had a weapon, but, but this change where he's added the sinker. And he's been able to to make the sinker work against his curveball and change up the way he has, has really given him some some somehow it it uh it really changed um what it is that he does. And that's a really really silly way to put it. I'm actually looking here for to see Fangraph's value. Yeah, so his cur his his change up has jumped in value, but his fastball has jumped in value a lot. Fangraphs graded it as a negative pitch um, prior to May 30th or May 25th. And then after May 30th, it's been an extremely well-rated pitch um, from an effectiveness standpoint. So adding that sinker was the weapon that he had been missing all along. So I guess the thing I would ask you then is, is obviously there's an improvement here. There's the, the, whatever adjustments have made have made a vast difference for him. But the real question I have then is, is can it he just, keep it up? Yeah, yeah. It's really can he keep it up because it's more. Is it have we gotten past the point of hey, we have a book on him now? Like, is this 
Is this, hey, I'm, I'm still succeeding even though people know what the adjustments I made are? Uh, boy, that's a great question. Um, the, the, so the question is basically, can can the major leagues adjust to him? And that I'm not sure about. What I can say is this. First of all, he, there's no way he's going to maintain a 0% home run rate. No pitcher in the major leagues can do that. So he is going to start giving up a little more home runs. And so his, his 243 ERA over the last six starts really is not – is not legitimate. Um, but with a more normalized home run rate, his ERAs would still be well under four. That I think he can sustain. So no, I don't think he can sustain a 243 ERA. I don't think that's realistic. But I do think he can he sustain his improved strikeout rate. And I do think he's, he's still not walking batters, which he's never really walked a lot of batters. And I have no reason to doubt that this two-seamer can keep generating ground balls. I think he's a different pitcher now. He's a, he, I think he's just might as well have a different name and different tattoos because he's a different guy. So I think that if he keeps this up, it, this feels like a hot take because we're not Mike Fires here, but I'm, I'm looking at, at his arsenal and, and the fact that he's made mechanical changes, and I, I think he can sustain an ERA for the rest of the year somewhere around – you know, three thirty to three forty, and yeah, I know we're talking about the Astros' fifth starter, but there's nothing in what he's done over the last last six starts, except for not give up a home run, that is screaming that it, it can't be sustained. Then I, I will predict you this because because I, I would say that he's already moved himself up out of the fifth slot. Uh, no matter who is in the rotation here going forward here, because I, I think Brad Peacock has shown that. As much as he's been successful, the Astros desperately need him to be the be the, the long man out of the bullpen. Yeah, and be well. Really... Go ahead. Yeah, I'm. I don't give much stock to the you know, first, second, or fifth, or whatever in the rotation right. once the season starts because you know that gets all messed up as soon as the first guy gets hurt. Um, I was just more more in quantity than than effectiveness. What um, I, what I want two things I want to say here is just that I predict you will be having a discussion of asking asking. Will Mike Fires or Colin McHugh be the fourth starter in a playoff rotation? And I will then yeah. this did I will pass you the baton on our subject we wanted to talk about in playoff playoff rotations in general. Right. And I feel like I'm doing all the talking here, Ryan. You you want to say anything? <laughs> I, my job is just to set up the set the table here, sir. Oh, so my job is to babble incoherently at the top of, you know, just right off the top well, of my I mean, head. I, what more is there to add about Mike Fires? I mean, seriously, it's just he, he has clearly made adjustments and been very successful with it. And right. The Astros, I mean, here, I'll, I'll take it this angle of that Mike Fires has basically made it so the Astros don't need to go out there and get, get one of those frontline starters. Uh, sure seems like it. You could you could argue and say, hey, I'm not really comfortable going with a, a, a Colin McHugh that may not be healthy until after the all-star break uh, and really what can you expect out of him uh, or you can say I don't really trust going with Francis Martez or Paulino or Musgrove or whoever you want to say with it that's the experience levels less than a year right I mean is is uh is Mike Fires back in the circle of trust I think he's got to be right yeah absolutely I think that's and you know and, and you know, on the on the twenty seventh on on a Tuesday, he he uh, he did give up four runs, but it was a really weird start. It's one of the starts you're like, well, that was still a good start despite the fact that he gave up four runs in five and a half innings. He gave up a home run. He only walked one batter, and he struck out seven. 
So his FIP was 173 in this game that he gave up four runs. So yeah, he's he's definitely in my circle of trust. Um, well, and, the and reason I'm so sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, and, and in that start, he exited in the sixth inning with I believe what two runners on or the bases loaded, and and it was the relief yeah. pitcher that gave the game that, that allowed three more runs to score there. Right, right. So I mean, the, the last thing I want to say about Mike Fires is. The reason I'm bullish on Mike Fires, and and you know you know me, I'm a stats guy, but if I'm going to see a guy do a massive transfer transformation in the middle of the season, first thing I'm going to look at is see if he was lucky, and he hasn't been lucky. Uh, he is in the same situation in my brain as Marwin Gonzalez. Both of them have made noticeable, tangible, and measurable changes in their approach to how they're playing the game. And the drastic results are a direct result of that and nothing else. And so I'm bullish on fires because I know that what he's done over the last six starts has nothing to do with luck except for in a home run department and has everything to do with this mechanical change he's made. So there you go. Hey, I, I think that's we fit the nail in the coffin of just that Mike Fires absolutely earned the circle of trust again and is definitely – I think there's no reason to think that if you were to ask me right now – of the current starters, if you had everyone healthy right now, you wouldn't be rolling out, obviously, Keuchel, McHugh, Morton. I mean, how much of a conversation do you really have to say, hey, that Mike Fires is that fourth guy you're going to be throwing out there? Yeah. yeah. Who is your? Who would be your playoff rotation? Is that your playoff rotation? Is it going to be Morton and Fires? I have to say that I think that I, – I, well, it's kind of hard to put McHugh into that when you just don't know how he's going to come right. back. I mean, um, we we have to at least acknowledge how good McHugh has been over the last three years. He's been one of the best pitchers in the American League. Um, the thing you know, would, from a from a total value standpoint. The thing I would ask is the way that Fires has changed his game, and and changing what how his pitch selection is. It just kind of who translates better in the role of, hey, I want you to make sure you're going five innings in a playoff game compared to going two innings out of the bullpen. Right. Who, who not, would, and not in the playoffs that, that I'd be terribly worried about that because having Peacock and Giles and and um, and Davinsky in the bullpen, that'd be one heck of a playoff bullpen, but that's neither here nor there. We're talking about the rotation. Uh, okay, then I will ask you this because I feel like we, we could have easily answered this with Mike Fires in the past here of who the link, weakest link on the team is right now. If I simply ask you who is the weakest link on on the twenty five man roster, who jumps to your mind? I know I'm putting you on the spot because I have an answer. And no, it's got to be Ioki, and that's stretch to say your fifth outfielder is the only weak link on the team. It's not Tony Sip anymore. Tony Sip's been downright good for the last month or so. I it's, have an answer then that is different than yours. I, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. It's either Raymond Goudouin, and that doesn't necessarily count because he's just basically there because Brad Peacock's in the starting rotation. And maybe James Hoyt. Yeah, Hoyt's been struggling yeah, and a that's, lot. And that's but you know what? Neither of those guys are ever going to sniff the playoffs. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, they may be yeah. on the playoff roster, but they may pitch no more than an inning. I mean, that's I, – I, I really – the reason I bring up James Hoyt and really phrase this question at all is – what point do you say, hey, he's a, he is we have shaped him into a definitely into a weapon in the Astro system, and he deserves to be on. He was deserved to be on the opening day roster. But what, at what point do you say, hey, it's maybe time to pull the ripcord when he's given up runs in, let's see here, 
seven of his last nine outings. Right. Well, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Now I'm going to readily acknowledge that there may be something James Hoyt is doing that is allowing people to mash him. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's not walking guys and he has a strikeout rate, you know, that is beyond description. It's almost 40%. So he's striking out four out of every 10 batters that he faces. His BABIP is over 400. It should be somewhere around 290. His home run per fly ball rate is 21%. It should be somewhere around 8. So what I don't know is, has James Hoyt been perhaps the unluckiest reliever in the entire major leagues, and that is a real possibility, or... Is he tipping his pitches? Maybe. Because there's really not very many other options. When you look at walks and strikeouts, and he has been one of the most dominant pitchers in the major leagues. End of story. You, you just There's been very few who have been better than him using those two stats that the pitcher can actually control. But the hits are all falling for hits. When, when they make contact, they're falling for hits. At a, at a ridiculously high rate and too many of his balls are leaving the park. So I'm not ready to, to throw the baby out with a bathwater on James Hoyt. It's hard to, to see him still being run out in the major league rotation when there's so much on the line this year, but I wouldn't be against them hanging on to him and keeping to running him out in you know, uh, low pressure situations of which let's be honest, the Astros have a lot of cause they're blowing out people so often. Um, I think James Hoyt is, is really, could be really good. So unless he's tipping his pitches or something like that, I think it's, this could just be a matter of the, the statistics need to stabilize. Um, good one. I think I agree with you. He, he is struggling. I, I wouldn't even really count him, honestly, and, and that's not—it's not a slight against him. It's just more he's—he literally is in this in this spot right now because the Astros don't have what they want in the bullpen, and, right? And and, and, would, and see, that's sorry. I'm gonna say it would be Jordan Janikowski if it wasn't him. That's right. And, and see, the thing with Hoyt is it, what we're doing is we're looking at a <laughs> the the last guy in the bullpen. Not if you know if we're taking good one out of it, last guy in the bullpen who's got an XFIP of 230, 2.30. So if we normalized his stats, that's what his ERA would be. And and saying that he's the weakest link on the team, this is a good problem to have. Maybe, yeah. It's it's just it just I want I thought about I thought about that after he gave up the grand slam the other night uh, coming right. out of the bullpen. I thought about writing a story about him saying, "Hey, is it time?" It just ran out of ran out of time to even write it. Um, yeah, but, I'd probably I'd probably fight you on it just on general principle because I do believe in in statistical regression. Um, but uh, yeah, that's I a want good point. editorial a day, so it was the it was the clear editorial that would have been short. <laughs> it would have been two hundred fifty to three hundred words, and I would have been happy with it. Right. So, and that would have been it would have been the hot take necessarily. It just would have been simply saying, "Hey, this, these stats are starting to pile up."
Right. Okay. So your playoff rotation, though, that that you you pick uh, pick fires. And I think at this point, I would have to also. Um, for me, it might be a toss up between Morton and McHugh. Uh, I, I I really like Colin McHugh when he's healthy. Uh, but I just go scared that he might not be healthy. But uh, why aren't we also scared that Morton might not be healthy? Morton hasn't been healthy in five years. So, um, at this point, fires might be my number three until somebody else proves otherwise. And, and that's okay. And that's okay because... (laughs) <laughs> I was just waiting for the setup. I need to go there. So one of our longtime readers, uh, the advocate who uh, you know, goes by the name of the advocate on the crawfish boxes, wrote a great fan post um, earlier in the week, actually at the end of May, uh, called debunking the playoff rotation myth. And I loved this fan post because it confirmed something that I always kind of believed. But when I said it, people would would throw it away and and. What he's saying is around this time of year when teams are in contention, like the Astros, what do all the callers on talk radio, all they want to talk about is we have to trade for an ace. We have to trade for an ace over and over. We need pitching. We need pitching. There is no reason to say that. And and that conversation leads into other conversations that I absolutely hate because once somebody says, no, I don't want to trade for a pitcher. Then somebody else comes back with, well, do you want to win a World Series or not? And and that question has always driven me crazy. It's a stupid question because there is no proof that adding an extra pitcher gives you significantly better odds of winning a World Series. There's so much luck and variability in winning a, a single series between two of the best teams in baseball that adding, for example, a, let's say, Jose Quintana Colin McHugh or Mike Fires, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Now, over the course of the season, it could. It can make a big difference on the regular season record. Um, but it, over the course of a single series or even two or three single series in a case of a playoffs, it's just not going to make that much difference. That guy's going to get three or four starts at most. And what the advocate did is he looked back at all of the World Series um all the clubs that competed in a World Series going all the way back to the year 2000. So he looked at 16 or 17 years, 17 years worth of World Series contenders and looked at their rotations and looked at their wins above replacement for that rotation. And he found out some really interesting things that kind of confirmed my belief that this whole idea that you have to have three aces going into the playoffs is bogus. Okay? You with me? Yep, yep, yep. All right. The first thing he finds is that over the last 17 years, the losing team has had a better rotation in terms of wins above replacement. So by a measurable statistic, the losing team has had a better starting rotation than the winning team on average. Does that surprise you? Um, I, my mind jumps to the thought of maybe then that, that starting the managers have kind of relied on their starting pitching a little bit more and saying, hey, in a situation where I normally would have would have pulled this guy in the sixth or seventh inning, maybe I've tried to let him finish it out because he's my best pitcher. That's a really good point. It's, it's a really good point, and it is a possibility, and that'd be really interesting to look at. I mean, we're talking about a seventeen-year sample, so it's not it's not it's not inconsequential. Um, this is we're basically talking about the modern era of baseball post steroids. Um, 
you, that is possible, the winning team. But on the other hand, if the winning team is ahead, they may be leaving their pitcher in longer because he's being successful. So who knows? The, the second point that he found, that out of the 34 participants um, in, in those uh, World Series, did I do that math right? Yeah. 25 of them have started at least one pitcher that has a below average wins above replacements for the season. So they have started a below average pitcher 25 times or 25 of those uh, out, of, out of those 34 teams have started a pitcher in the World Series that was a below average starting pitcher. And that's just the World Series he's looking at. He says, keep in mind that those teams have already won two previous postseason series to even get there having this below average starting pitcher in their rotation. So that's something else is that there's no correlation to say that if you have a below average third or fourth starter, for example, that that's chances. Matter of fact, it seems to be the opposite. So there's no correlation at all. Um, 65% of World Series winners have started a pitcher in the World Series with less than two war for the season. So that's well more than half of World Series winners had a below average pitcher start this in the series. And then the last point he makes that I love, because this kind of you know drives home the local angle. When the Astros were in the World Series in 2005, their very best pitcher in the World Series was Brandon Backey. Ah, yes. Still, I yeah, I remember that. I just the dude, the kid from Galveston, going out there giving him his all. Was it game yeah, well, game, but, game four? Yeah. So think about this. This was a rotation with Roger Clemens, Hall of Famer. Roy Oswalt was on pace to be a Hall of Famer before his career ended when it did, which was in his early to mid-30s. Andy Pettit, arguably a borderline Hall of Famer. Wandy Rodriguez, he was a pretty good pitcher. Wandy was a pretty good pitcher. And Brandon Backey. And the one that was the best for the Astros in that World Series was Brandon Backey. So, I mean, it's it's cherry-picking a little bit. It's yeah. one example. However... The, the Advocates post, which, again, I loved and I actually bookmarked it because this is an argument that comes up every single year. Uh, what he found is that since the year 2000, there is absolutely no proof whatsoever that you need three stud starting pitchers to win in the playoffs or in the World Series. And, and you know, it's, it's easy to say what well, helps you know, because they're better, but that's just not the case because there's too much variability over a single series of baseball for, for that to ever be the case. Well, and I think you'd probably, if you look at one player and use that as an example and say the, the LA Dodgers haven't even made it to the world series with Clayton Kershaw. And that's not, I know. A, and that's not a reflection on Kershaw. Kershaw is giving his all. He is the best pitcher in baseball right now, well, at least in the conversation. And, and it's just, Baseball is not about one player. Right. And, you know, up until last year or the year before, I don't remember which, the running the running story was Kershaw stunk in the playoffs. He was awful. I don't know if you remember that, but up up until I think it was two seasons ago, uh, Clayton Kershaw's playoff ERA or his Kershaw's playoff ERA was something like eight. So, you know, anything can happen in the playoffs. You know, Billy Bean famously said his stuff doesn't work in the playoffs. You know, numbers don't work in the playoffs because a one series, a one series playoff uh, game or playoff series 
against another one of the very best teams in baseball, anything can happen. And I think the Astros are actually set up to do this the right way. They've got a good rotation. They don't need to add anybody if they're healthy. And that's that's the real big question is do they need to add somebody because of health? But they have a extremely, extremely deep lineup in bullpen. That is what could make a difference in a seven-game series, not who the starter is once every four days or every five days. And what the Astros desperately need right now to make sure that that major weapon that is probably the most underrated thing about the Astros right now is that bullpen. Yep. They need to get some guys that are putting together consistent six and seven at uh, inning outings as a starting pitcher. Uh, hopefully, the, it looks like the Astros will get Morton back here pretty soon. May it sounds like they might get Dallas Keuchel back as well. There's news out today that he's basically feels like he's healthy, and he may be able to come back for the Blue Jays series, which is I believe at the end of the week next week. Right. So there's there's from the bullpen standpoint, there's some similarities between this year's Astros group and the Royals team that won the 2015 World Series. Um, you know that that team had one of the best bullpens ever. And the Astros really are pretty darn close to that level. The difference between the Royals and the Astros is that the Astros can hit like crazy. But the other interesting thing, and this kind of backs up my point, is that the Royals rotation that year when they won the World Series was Edinson Volquez, Johnny Cueto, Jordano Ventura, and Chris Young. Mm-hmm. who is like 900 years old and throws 83 miles an hour, and they won the World Series. I'm sorry, if that Royals team can win the World Series, that tells me that the quality of the individual pitchers at the very top of the rotation, as long as they don't suck, is not as big a factor in winning in the playoffs as the talk radio junkies think it is. Psst. The 2015 Astros that are basically the same core may have been better than that 2015 Royals team. Yep, yep, yep. Let's not linger on that. Pat Neshek and his bone spur killed us. Hey, would you not not be asking for Pat Neshek back right now instead of, let's say, James Hoyt? Mm, No, like I said, I still like Hoyt. I want to see more. Hey, I'm not saying I don't dislike Hoyt. What I'm just saying is, guess who who is the, I, I believe at one time here I saw was the number one war player currently for the Phillies. Yeah. No, Nishek's been good this year. I mean, like, if you told me, hey, you could turn James Hoyt into something uh, something interesting, uh, another asset in some form or fashion, maybe a future pitcher or something like that, and someone there say, hey, you can take this project, like like the Dodgers have taken uh, Josh Fields, and say, hey, you can bring <laughs> Pat, Pat Nishek back for basically nothing. No, I'm I'm not doing that. I, okay. I got to be honest. I think James Hoyt has the goods to be one of the best relievers in baseball. I, I want to see if he's been stinking unlucky or whether he's doing something that's causing his own bad luck uh, because he's just got dominant stuff, and I want to see what happens with it. I think I'd rather have him. Fair enough. Fair Sorry enough. if that's not the answer you were fishing oh, for, no, but no. I, I'd rather not, I still, uh, despite, his, despite his struggles with preventing runs this year, I really like what I see. I, I just don't think everyone likes to see it, hear us uh, agree on everything, so that's good. Okay, well, you're wrong. <laughs> Let's give them what they want. Face is wrong. <laughs> Your mom's face is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so let's talk about just let's wrap this bad boy up here and, and and talk about a few minor leaguers here that the uh, the Astros had three guys selected to the futures game here this year: uh, Derek Fisher, Kyle Tucker, and uh, Jordan 
Jordan Alvarez will play for the world team, uh, while Tucker and Fisher will play for Team USA. And also, uh, we had two guys named to the AAA All-Star game, Derek Fisher and Colin Moran. That's right. It's a good group. And I had to, I, I'll be honest, I had to look up Jordan Alvarez. I hadn't really been following uh, the minor leagues as closely as I usually do. Usually do. He's he's He just turned 20 years old two days ago, and he's been in high A for the last week. So he's he's um he was promoted to high A. He destroyed single A ball. Destroyed it. Hit 360 with 468 OBP and a 658 slugging percentage. He hit nine home runs in 32 games. He's a, a first baseman and it says slash outfielder. I'm not sure which position he's playing more often, but a lefty batter and he is Barely 20 years old, and he's about three years younger than the average age at his current level. So I'm going to keep an eye on him. You know, I'm not going to fall in love with the next Astros first base prospect because I've been disappointed too many times. But um, his his spot, and I just wanted to talk about him because he's one of the lesser known guys in the system uh, compared to the other guys you named. Uh, his spot in the All Star game is well, well, well deserved. Well, um, the other guy that really needs to be talked about. Um, you know, he was a, a Colin Moran. Okay. He was a, a third baseman in triple a and, and you know that I was basically on the Colin Moran bandwagon for a good amount of time up through 2015 and even into 2016 when he was struggling a little bit and then he stunk. I mean, last year he was a bad baseball player. There's really no way to get around it. Um, this year he has not stunk this year with a normal, Babip, I'd like to point out, he's hitting 298 with a 360 on base percentage and 563 slugging percentage. So pop quiz, Ryan, what was the biggest knock against Colin Moran coming out of college and all through his minor league career? Do you remember uh, that he just wasn't very sexy at all? There was that. Well, yeah, there's that. But also the fact that he wasn't going to hit for power. All the scouts were saying he's got a good hit tool. He's not going to hit for power. This year in 64 games, he has hit 17 home runs at AAA. Hmm. That's that's a lot of home runs. Matter of fact, that is fourth most in the PCL. See, the thing is, I I don't I don't even know what at this point I'm just like where what's where does he even play? I believe. If I remember correctly, hearing recently, he may be playing some some outfield as well. So maybe the Astros are trying to get him. Yeah, he's uh, we only played. He's only he's only played one one game of outfield recently. Here, he's it's been first base and third base. Uh, yeah, he's played two games in the outfield, in the outfield three games, four games. I, I'm, I'm I, right. Well, I, the I mean, reason he's, I'm he's... even bringing that point up is where in the hell do you play him if he's hitting this well? Because right now it seems like Derek Fisher is the first guy you're calling up anytime, and maybe Tony Kemp if it's an infield issue. Right. Where- so I'm, I don't think that Colin Moran should be called up this year. Um, he's He's going to turn 25 later this year. And so next year really is his year if he's going to make the major leagues at all. But I'm not messing with a good thing right now. Um, I'm not, he, he struggled so much last year in the major leagues in a very small sample. And he struggled so much at AAA that let's see him keep doing this for the rest of this year. Because if Colin Moran ends up hitting 30 home runs at AAA, and even though the PCL is a batter friendly league, if he ends up hitting 30 home runs or more at AAA maintains a strikeout rate that's lower than 20%. 
and keeps hitting around 300 with a 300 BABIP, we might be looking at the answer to the thir- the first base question that I, I brought up earlier. A.J. Reed, John Singleton, Tyler White, none of them are really standing out. Um, Tyler White's having a good year. A.J. Reed is starting to worry me. And you know I was the, I was the captain of the fan club. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, really and truly, there's nothing strange about what Colin Moran is doing. It, it's not luck-based. He's been legitimately good, and he's hit for legitimate power this year. If he can keep that up, you know, he might be the type of guy that the Astros just love because, hey, you got a guy that play first base, third base, and left field. He's just another Swiss Army knife, another guy who can hit. You can you can mess around with your lineup, give people days off, and keep hot hitters in the lineup. You know, somebody with that kind of – if he does have that kind of flexibility, if that's what they're working on, it is very possible that Colin Moran could be a regular first baseman within the next 12 months or so with the Astros. So what you're saying is the Astros are going to trade Marvin Gonzalez? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I think the Astros love Marvin Gonzalez and the role that he's in. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm, just, I'm going to put I'm going to put words in your mouth for for whatever that means. They're trading you just, Yuri Gurriel. You're just trying to hurt me. No, I want them to sign Marwin to a long term extension now, man. Yeah. So Gurriel, I'm not sure. I, I'm just not sure what the answer is. I'm not at the point right now where I would ever trust Colin Moran ahead of Yuli Gurriel. Um, because Colin Moran hasn't done it for long enough for my taste. Uh, but I will say I like what I see and I hope that it can continue because that would be a great surprise. It would make that Jared Cozart trade from several years ago, even more hilariously lopsided. If every single player in that trade turned out to be a well above average major leaguer, um, you know, it, it would just be the icing on the cake for that trade. Well, uh, what I would uh, what I would ask you here is then is with the, having these two guys that cut uh, with Fisher and Moran, since specifically those guys going to AAA here, between those guys, do you feel like one of these guys are going to get a shot in the major league roster here this year, as you've seen with Fisher already, if the team kind of cuts bait on Norioki? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I, I do think that Derek Fisher will be back with a major league club. Even if they cut bait with Nori Aoki, I, I have to think that they would want Derek Fisher to play every day. And, and the problem with calling him up to the majors, even if they cut Nori Aoki, is that Fisher won't be able to play every day because the Astros need Marwin Gonzalez to play every day. They need George Springer and Josh Reddick, and they need to keep Carlos Beltran in the lineup as much as possible. And Jake Marisnik has earned playing time. So, you know, how old is Derek Fisher now? I want to say 22, Yeah, he's, he's 23. He'll be 24 by the end of the season. Um, I... I would not be surprised if both Fisher and Moran stayed in the minor leagues until September because I think that Derek Fisher has earned the right for people to expect that he will be the regular left fielder next year when, when Beltran, you know, retires or whatever and Ioki is cut. Um, I think Derek Fisher has proved that he is capable of being that everyday left fielder. But I don't know if it would serve anybody's purpose 
to bring him up to the major league and have him sit on the bench and only play two or three times a week. I don't I don't think I would want to do that with a guy like him. And um, same thing with Moran. Let's keep Moran in the minor leagues and see if he continues this thing. I don't think either of their development is going to be harmed by finishing the year in AAA and then coming up in September. Um, I just I feel like it, it could possibly be worse to have them riding the pine at the major league level than it would be to have them in AAA all year and expect them to be major contributors next year, possibly. Anyway, we're putting the cart ahead of the horse on Moran. You know, I'm the jury's still out. It's just very hopeful. But in Fisher's case, I think it's reasonable to expect that he could be the everyday left fielder next year. So why rush it? Well, and also I, I would say that we're kind of putting the horse before the cart here, or the heart cart before. The I horse. knew what you meant. Yeah, the cart before the horse. With getting rid of Aoki, I feel like that they're kind of saying, hey, that this guy has value at least for maybe a pinch hit at bat or. Being that guy that, hey, this is a veteran. He knows all X number of pitchers in the league right now and has a game plan for all of them. I don't know. I, I'm just saying I, I feel like I feel like we've kind of hit the wall of, hey, there's he, there's a reason he's bounced around so much of yeah. late. And, and the, we've hit that wall of, hey, he's right there right now with the Astros. Well, and there's another option, too. I mean, like I said, I think Derek Fisher has the inroad to be the everyday left fielder starting next year. But if the Astros decide – that, look, Aoki really isn't working, that he's hurting more than he's helping. They've got another option. They've got a couple other options. Um, John Kemmer is down at AAA, and he's 26 years old. He's, an, he's a corner outfielder, and he's having a very nice season, too. Um, he had a very good year two years ago, and then like a couple other guys, he had a bad last year, and he kind of fell off the radar. Well, now he's 26 years old. He's got a good walk rate, strikes out a lot, but he's hitting 296, 387, 538. He's belting home runs himself. He would be a guy that I wouldn't be against seeing coming up and playing two or three times a week and serving as a backup outfielder, designated hitter, pinch hitter type. Let's see what he can do in part times in the major league. He's not gotten his chance yet, and he's certainly at 26, not a prospect anymore. Um, the other guy is Teoscar Hernandez is still down there. He's got a little bit more flexibility in terms of positionally, um, a little bit more upside than Kemmer. Um, but he's 24 years old. There's no way and reason to rush him, but he's having a good season too down at AAA. So I don't necessarily think that the Astros are prevented from cutting Ioki because they don't want to play Derek Fisher part-time. Um, the, you know, I kind of would like to see John Kemmer in the major leagues. Um, you know, he's got kind of a Luke Scottish feel about him. Um, one of these older guys who might actually turn out to be a, a decent major leaguer. Um, that is a move that I could see happening. I was going to say, I don't know if a, a Luke Scott feels necessarily a good thing. No, Luke Scott um, was a good batter with the Astros. Oh, I meant of more his off the field endeavors, but... Eh, overblown. It's all overblown. He's just too free with his opinions. Oh, I know. I'm just, yeah, just more yeah. of a joke than a comment on. No, I know. Opinions. I know what you meant. But you know, you know, Luke Scott is kind of a part timer in the first first couple seasons. His 20, age 26, 27, 28 seasons. He was a decent baseball player, and and you know, just even looking at the numbers, he smells a lot like John Kemmer. Um, there's a lot of similarities there, just in terms of you know the positions they played, and um, you know the the power. The, the above average but not elite power, you know, the ability to hit a little bit, take some walks. I, I think 
that that is the next logical move if the Astros are going to do anything and and address that fifth outfield spot from inside. If uh, if Carlos Lee did never exist on this roster, would 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 Luke Scott have been the ultimate? Hey, I wish the Astros were in the AL sooner uh, player in uh, for for Houston it, it, just across the entire franchise history. Um, I just feel like that seemed like maybe t- yeah t- maybe an interesting question there. I guess maybe Jason Lane, maybe no, I don't know. I'm trying. Yeah, to think- I think Jason Lane's yeah, Jason Lane and Luke Scott are pretty similar in terms of their production and what they did. You know, um, it, it's funny because being a major leaguer is so incredibly difficult that it's easy to minimize how good guys like Jason Lane and Luke Scott were. Um, but but realistically, they are perfectly average major league outfielders and there's some value in that but you know they're the guys that you're like hey these guys can hold it down pretty well let's see if we can find somebody better um i I hate to say it but you know josh reddick a little bit has fit that mold over the last several years in his career um he's been very good for the astros this year i have to say you're you're wrong sir there Okay, no, no, no. Josh Reddick's having the best year of his career this year. I mean, I'm not talking. No, no, no. I'm not talking about. I'm talking about defensively specifically. Josh Reddick is far better player fielding the ball, having yeah, yeah, yeah. Having, th- having a throwing arm compared to Jason Lane and Luke Scott. And I don't mean that as a slight. Oh, oh no, no, no. You are 100 percent correct. I was talking about the plate. Luke Scott was a complete travesty on defense. Um, That's what I'm thinking. I was just thinking of balancing out. Good Lord, please get them out of the out of the outfield. And uh, very major league average or above average bat for many years for the Astros. Right, right. Because I think, but yeah, yeah. Luke could, Scott definitely would have done better in 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 an AL than. <laughs> well, he had it than, basically his and, post his post Astros career was nothing but being a DH and was really productive for a lot of teams. Right. Um, the reason I, I, I don't have to get off on a wild tangent, I just I was just realizing it's like man. How many times would have Luke Scott have been like thinking back and was like, man, those are my those are my prime years, and I, I could have I could have been even better if I just said, hey, just give me a bat for for 150 games, and and don't worry, I don't want to worry about having to cover right field or anything like that. Yeah, you got to wonder. There's probably a bunch of guys out there that think, man, I wish I played in baseball during this era instead of that era. You think about guys like Russell Brannion, mm-hmm. who just had monster power, but that was back when strikeouts were so taboo. I mean, here's a guy who struck out 33% of the time. You know, he's basically Miguel Sano. He's basically Joey Gallo. You know, guy like that these days would have been celebrated. Russell Brannion would have been one of the most celebrated players in baseball right now. But in his career, he never could get more than 200 to 300 plate appearances in a season because he struck out so much. Doesn't matter that he walked all the time and hit home runs all the time. I would imagine guys like that, you know, look at today's game and go, man, I was born about 15 years too early. Yeah. And then there's someone like Chris Carter who's just having the roughest run run of of an entire career when it comes to being that exact guy, but just hey, too yeah. much that guy. Yeah. However, he's been with the Yankees twice this year. He was called back up today. So, Oh, I thought they, <laughs> I thought they designated him for assignment. <laughs> they did. They just purchased his contract again. Cause the guy who replaced him got hurt. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> good for him. I always liked him. He just isn't very good at hitting baseball. Oh, was it John Sickles who said he was going to be the MVP at one point? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Man, it didn't happen. <laughs> well, but I'm sure he. We we see exactly why he thought that is because he was going to put a huge home run total up. It just he thought the uh, the strikeout rate was going to come down. 
Well, Chris Carter never quite figured out, has never quite figured out how to adjust his swing to go to the ball. You see, you know, like, uh, you know, Carlos Correa and George Springer and Jose Altuve, they'll go get balls. Mm -hmm. Chris Carter always swung his bat through the middle of the zone. Yeah. And basically every home run or every good hit he ever hit was just because the pitcher made a mistake and it happened to run into the bat. So, you know, just from from a outsider's perspective, I mean, his hand-eye coordination was terrible. He just swung really hard, and when he did make contact, the ball went a long way. And hey, it worked for him to a certain extent. It wasn't it that he had the, one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, swinging at swinging through strikes in the zone. Uh, I'm actually looking at it right now. Let's see his his zone contact. Yeah, his zone contact is 75 percent for his career, which is pretty rotten. That's pretty rotten. Okay, I think that's a good rabbit hole we've gone down here. And we've, we've gone yeah, we're this. talking about Chris Carter and Luke Scott. Where what what has gone wrong with our lives? I think that's a good stopping point here. Let's let's wrap it up, and we've got an hour in, so I hope everyone enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Check us out on our website at thecrawfishboxes.com. Check us out on Twitter at crawfishboxes. Check us out on Facebook at the crawfishboxes. Just search search our name; it should pull up, no problem. Uh, if you find a site about crawfish, you've gone too far. And make sure you also like it, like us on iTunes and give us a review. It helps how it helps us get better and helps us grow our podcast because you know we just want to be cool and stuff, right? That Chris? we do. That, that's, that we do. That is a goal. Both of us as as being bloggers. cool is always on my list of things to do. Matter of fact, I have it written on my mirror in lipstick. Every morning I read it, it says "Be cool." Is it your lipstick? Is it yes? Okay, cool. That's uh, I'm glad. I'm glad we're we're comfortable. Absolutely with, comfortable in our sexuality with that. <laughs> Chris, where can the fine people find you about your lipstick notes? Like they would want to, uh, I can be found at at crperry13 on Twitter. Anything you're working on? No, uh, I was really pleased with the reception of the article that I published last week about the Astros should not trade for an ace starting pitcher. Um, honestly, the reaction it got surprised me a lot. More people agreed with me than not. Um, but that pretty much filled my my quota of one article every three months or whatever I'm up to now. So if I'm open for ideas, I will take suggestions at CR Perry 13. You can check me over at D underscore M-O-R-E-5-5 M -O -R -E five five because... Uh, I do things on the Crawfish Boxes and Battle Red Blog and the Dream Shake. We had an emergency podcast last night for the uh, Chris Paul news joining the Rockets. So it's now the third podcast I've recorded in three nights. Woohoo! So what do you think of the trade? I think it's going to be interesting because Chris Paul has a very long track record of being a very dominant personality that has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Now, that could fall into the Dwight Howard zone, where Dwight Howard was that same kind, but he was also a whiny baby. Chris <laughs> Paul is not anywhere shape or form like a whiny baby. He is just like a drill sergeant. He is will go He's an up alpha. To, yeah, he will go up to a grown man that is two almost two feet taller than him and, and just berate him live on national television. <laughs> yeah, my 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 worry is the fact that he's approaching his middle thir mid thirties, right. and I just wonder how that's going to pan out, and if his game when when his game is going to decline. He should have a few more years in him. Uh, the good news is that obviously it sounded like James Harden actively recruited him, and that yeah. they're probably friends. So that's going to help the personality thing a little bit. 
For sure. I think I agree with that sentiment 100% there. Um, it's just going to be That has pretty much exhausted my basketball knowledge, in case you were wondering. I, I've got nothing beyond that. I was going to say, do you want to go right for the Dream Shake as well? I mean, we really kind of could use, no. a, use another. I mean, that pretty much is my basketball knowledge. It's, it's you know, what do I hear on the radio on the way to work and on the way home? Yeah, so I, I'm not really worried about it necessarily. What I think is it's going to be interesting uh, is to see if this is the final guy. If this is if they're content with rolling with them with these two it guys. It can't be. It can't be. You're correct. But what our, our uh, editor over at the Dream Shake said basically is Clint Capella is going to be the big three. It's going to, yeah. he's, going to he's going to compete. So can can they afford to keep Ryan Anderson now? Uh, well, if they want to add somebody like Paul George, you're going to have to jettison him. Yeah, I think that's a pipe dream personally, but I do think that you could probably pick up somebody else. Yeah, so no, I I think that right now you're, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I we we won't won't linger on that, but uh, thank you for listening and go Astros. Go Astros. Listen, uh...